There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If I hadn't met someone that would agree with my plan, I would have just been patient until I could have done it on my own, I think. What matters most? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. According to an old American proverb, a lioness doesn't need to roar to keep the crowd in awe. Today's guest is living proof of that. Well, Sue Briley, welcome to Short Black. Now, we caught up a couple of years ago and I have to admit, I will never forget meeting you. I had the opportunity to interview you and your son as the movie Lion came out and you really struck me as someone who had a really powerful message. It's fair to say, and I guess in many parts, the movie prompted you to write your own book, Lioness. That's true because in a way back then, my view and a lot of my very close thoughts were very secret. And it was only rarely that people got a bit of a glimpse into what I was really thinking and feeling because, of course, the focus was on Saru and his story, which, of course, was an incredible miracle. But as the time went on, Saru got asked a lot about me. And really, nearly three years ago, he came up with the idea that maybe it was time to answer the questions and that a book would be the best way to do that. His publisher, Penguin, approached me and said they were keen on the idea. And I thought, well, I'll look at what I could bring to the pages. So I worked on a 19-point plan. And when I'd completed that to my satisfaction, I put that proposal forth and it was accepted. Well, writing a book is a mammoth task and not everyone can do it. What if I'd have confidence from your son to say, hey, mum, you need to tell your story and I know that you can? Well, I I was surprised, of course, and I I was frightened because I'd never done anything like that before. I didn't know how successful I would be at it. And of course, I would be affected by the subject matter. So it was quite a risk to undertake it. But I'm the sort of person, if I start something, you know, I'll give it my all. And I had a huge resource of diaries that I'd been keeping really since about 12 years of age. Thank goodness. Yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't it? (laughs) But it was done really as a process of write it down, it's happened, move on. Then there's another page. There's another date in the diary. Not that they were that intense. I mean, sometimes there might have been only a couple of comments per week, but they were enough to give me a good framework for my story. And the other thing is I do have a good memory. I'm very thankful for that. And so each sentence was very heartfelt and considered. And that's why it took so long to write it. The movie was a phenomenal success, but you said that there was, in essence, a frustration that part of your story hadn't really been fleshed out. Is that what you mean? I guess that is. 
I think particularly in the part that affected me most, which was the meeting of Fatima, because at the end it was just like the closing credits and me meeting Saru's first mother. And for me, that was one of the key moments of the story. And so I would have liked um, at least the, at the minimum, that part to be subtitled because basically it to me came over as just this, you know, privileged and wealthy woman sobbing away like, over what? How lucky was I? But no one actually knew what was being said. So I was always very mindful of that. And so when I speak to people, I really try and convey that moment by the words that were going on so that it isn't just a privileged woman losing it in the dirt in the slums. It really wasn't like that. It was one of the most profound experiences I've experienced. And also it was one that I was very proud to share because I think it was a value to people to see that. So it was enormously valuable, and I found the emotion of the moment so completely captivating. As the stepmom of an adopted child myself, I was literally glued to you throughout that whole scene as much as I was to Fatima. What I loved was just seeing the pure joy on your face. I guess from the filmmaker's perspective, it was the perfect way to end the movie, but really your story was kind of cut short. Yes, and of course, through the um, process of filming as well with the editing and, and so forth, I know that Nicole played some incredible scenes, you know, many hours of footage, but of course a lot of that hit the floor. But I still feel as a woman, as a mother, as my kind of mother, that I'm an intrinsic part of that story. And for all the mothers watching, I felt it would have given them a lot more out of the story. It was a fantastic film and we're happy as a family. But I think for women, there was more to be had and seen. Well, the perception is adopted mothers are vigilant, jealous and insecure. And the truth is, it's anything but. That's a challenge in our society because we've got a very negative view about adoption. Australians from time immemorial have had a very checkered history about adoption. You know, right from our early years of bringing all those poor children from the UK and Ireland virtually as child slaves. And then we had that terrible time when we were taking children from the Indigenous populations because we thought it was the best thing to do. And then in turn in the 70s and 60s where we were really forcing young women to give up their babies because it wasn't socially acceptable for a single mother to be caring for a child. And so we've had a very unpleasant relationship with adoption in this country for far too long. And that's part of what I refer to as the mother myth because we've got to move on from that. It's just going on for too long It creates too much sadness. What would you say to young parents who are considering adoption? If it's truly in your heart and soul as something you want to undertake, yes, take the steps. You will have to work so hard because it is so difficult in this country. But once you've committed, you become parents just as powerful and valued as any biological parents. And certainly mothers who adopt are just as important as any other kind of mother. So we've got to get over this sort of second best kind of thinking because it has an effect on the child. 
So, for instance, a lot of adopted children feel that they're somehow a little less. They feel a little second best, a little bit. They have to strive to find their birth or biological families. There's a lot of uh, pressures put on those children to comply to the social thinking of the time. And that's really quite cruel. I believe that's very cruel, you know, because I've seen that really with Saru. He felt that even though he had his own true feeling to find his first family, he did feel also that society expected him to search and that obligation puts pressure on. And I can compare that with my other son, Manny, who has no desire to search. He does not want to rub his nose in anything unpleasant. He's had a tough enough time. But, you know, societies can be very manipulative and cruel. What surprised many, I think, is that you could have had children, but you chose not to. I'm proud of that decision. I'm doubly grateful that I met someone that agreed with me because back in the 70s, that wasn't such a common thing. But it was, a, it was thought of by certain parts of our society and they were the people who were newly becoming aware of our planet, of overpopulation, of terrible things like famine. And so suddenly people were thinking, hey, you know, this isn't sustainable And sadly today, we are in exactly the same situation in thinking, but the planet and our population, that is in a far worse place. So I've tried to write about that in my book, Reawaken Some Thoughts for Our Groaning Planet. I don't know that that will make any difference, but again, I hope it might create a little bit of thinking about this issue you know, that we just cannot go on with so many people coming onto the earth. I think it also helps people understand that for a lot of women, it can be a choice. Well, this is it. See, now it is a choice. For most societies, and certainly in developed countries, it is a choice. So I'm, I'm saying there, look, hey, sister, Around the world, there are millions of women with children that they can barely feed, let alone look after. They're often in terrible situations of wartime where their homes have been destroyed, there's just absolutely no infrastructure anymore, and they're struggling with children. And often their men have gone. They've run away to seek wealth or whatever, but they're leaving women and children behind, and that really upsets me. It's just wrong. I don't know how that will ever change because for time immemorial, people have always had war and this dysfunction seems to be like a disease in the human species of killing and war and just no thinking of the future. And it's so frustrating to me. And, of course, there's just, you know, millions of more people every year and, you know, where's this going to take us? I find it quite sad and it's, I have to really work at keeping myself upbeat and saying, look, I'm doing my bit. Do you remember those early days, those early conversations with John, your husband, about whether you were going to have kids? I do because, obviously, they were pretty profound. You know, our connection was pretty immediate. I met John when I was 16. We actually were, I think, a little bit sort of tail end hippie, if you like. 
we were coming out of that period where John hadn't long been in Australia. He'd come here with his parents when they retired from the UK. And we were quite aware of the rest of the world, and particularly John coming from a country where there were massive changes in population makeup. So he had an understanding of that. I learned a lot from what he told me about the UK. Of course, he had the pressure of he could have been signed up and sent to Vietnam. And as a new arrival, he thought this was just the most horrific thing. I mean, he saw how his parents were affected by wartime and he believed, you know, that war is really, look what it does. So he had a different understanding. He's also eight years older than I am. And, you know, we talked pretty intensely about this. I'd already decided, and quite honestly, if I hadn't met someone that would agree with my plan, I would have just been patient until I could have done it on my own, I think. The process of adopting, as we all know, is and was extremely difficult in Australia. I can't imagine what it was like to bring one, let alone two, young boys who were clearly adopted, clearly not your biological children, into a small island community like Tasmania. Do you remember those first few days and what it was like for Saru and Manny? Well, you know, fortunately, when they began to speak English fluently, we talked about this and it was a scary time for them. Let's face it, they'd both come from difficult situations and particularly Manny, who had just suffered the most horrific abuse and he virtually arrived like a frightened animal, really. And you could see that as soon as you laid eyes on him, his physical condition, the scabs on his hands. I mean, it was just the most terrifying thing to see. It was, in fact, more extreme than even I expected. You know, and I felt I had a fair understanding of what had gone on. But for me, I feel um, for him, we saved his life. We begged and got him out of that terrible place. But for Saru, he was not so harmed. So he had an opportunity to make a whole new life in a much better situation and starting point. So he grasped his new life very quickly and with an open heart and soon came to love us and that happened quite fast. We could see it and feel it. So even though he stood out in our house, it was like a safety zone. He could just be himself. So even though we were social people, we didn't thrust them out into society unduly. We were very considered about their exposure because we could not trust the response of other people fully. It was still a time where it was an unusual thing to do, although it was certainly more common then than it is now, but it was a part of protecting, you know, what they would be exposed to outside our own home space. They were very brave boys, very brave. Well, just as you are, as an Australian couple who were prepared to adopt them, don't underestimate the power of that. Do you recall when Saru told you he'd actually found his biological parents? In the movie, he was secretly searching online and tracking down trains. How true was that? Is that what actually happened? It was true. And that's what I mean when I'm talking about the conversation a little earlier about society portraying this, you must try and find your family, that kind of pressure that adopted people have put upon them. Because Saru believed in his own way, that we would be upset if we knew he was searching. 
which I'm still to this day very sad about because it wasn't from anything we said. We'd always made it plain that we'd embraced his origins and I had gone to particular effort to try and record it for him for the future, for his future. You know, it it was exclusively for him. So when Saru announced that he'd undertaken this search, literally he went into John's office and said, look, Dad, I've been doing something and I've found my first home. Well, of course, John was absolutely stunned. So he rang me straight after and said, look, you won't believe what Saru's done. He's been searching India on Google Earth for years and thinks he's found his first home. Well, of course, I was over the moon. I just thought this was such a wonderful thing. But a part of me was sad because if I'd known he was searching, I would have helped. I would have put in the hours. I knew all the landmarks. I had a rough sketch. I had a a name of a place spelt incorrectly. But I've come to accept that it was something he felt he had to do on his own. And that's how it is. So is that another example of why you felt the need to write the book Lioness to continue to help people understand that it doesn't have to be a them or us equation? Definitely there was a huge element of that and it is about filling in the gaps because a movie can say so much and his book said so much but there still was this sort of missing chunk of this story, of this family. I'm glad I've done it now It has been a lot harder than I thought, though, to be honest. What's the reaction been like? It's been amazing. I am quite surprised, actually. And, you know, I've talked about this with Saru, and uh, he said, well, why are you surprised? It really makes sense. It's filling in the story. Of course, it's going to be of great interest. But I guess that's really just me, my personality, my, you know, I do keep my cards close to my chest. It is always easier when you witness something because you have some perspective, but when you're in the middle of it, it's very hard to have that perspective because it's all about you. You're unsure what other people think about you and your story and are they making judgments about you? Well, definitely that was an issue because really I had a lot of skeletons in the, in the cupboard, a lot of things that people didn't know about me. And I am a bit fearful about any change in response to me because of what I've written. Because let's face it, some of the things might upset people. I worry that they might think I'm very critical of how women function as global mothers. I am quite um, committed to those views and I don't want to water them down. And through the editing process of my book, obviously, A lot of those things have been reduced in size and words and page count. But in a way, that part of my story is the most valuable part to me because that's the message I really want to share. You know, I've had um, a couple of negative responses. It's very difficult for a lot of people to accept the fact that I virtually decided on something as a kid coming from trauma, and I set my mind on a path which I never wavered from. And in the view of a lot of um, psychological and social work teachings, that is not considered possible. So I've shown that I did not have to stay there in that low place, and I didn't need any intensive rehabilitation 
or um, treatment or therapy for years or whatever, which sort of denounces the value of those professions in a way. Not that I'm doing that carte blanche, but I'm saying that we maybe put too much faith in that area of intervention and maybe it's not what really makes the difference for a lot of people. And I'm an example of where that worked. I feel like we have a bit of a parallel in some senses, Sue. I, I knew from a very early age that I would never have a child on my own. I think it was because of the struggle of seeing women my mother's age carry the full load. You know, their partners carried the financial burden of providing for the family, but all the emotional support, all the emotional functioning of a family and the physical functioning of the family fell on women. And I always knew I would never do it on my own until I was in a relationship that was strong enough for the both of us to share it. And, you know, I meet a lot of women who simply don't understand that thinking and are quite surprised that I would come to that view at 14, 15. I think the thing for most women is to keep true to their heart and soul and know when the time is right and embrace the opportunity when it arises. Because I'm very mindful of the fact that for my own mother, the youngest of 14 children, and then in turn the mother of three daughters, she really had no say in that. It was just a thing that happened and a thing she had to endure. And that was not going to be my path in life. And I'm living in Australia, a good country. That was definitely not what I was going to do. So the decision-making, it was a no-brainer. It really was important to me to stay the path. But I fear even now women are still manipulated into situations of motherhood and decision-making because of what's expected of them, that they're they're somehow less if they don't reproduce They're somehow less of a wife if they don't provide their husband or partner with their genetic offspring. There's all these obligations that are there that are too based in ego to put it right down to the most raw emotion. And I don't like that. And patriarchy. Yes, definitely. And so for me, I'm thinking, look, hey, that's not right. I truly believe that's not right. It's making women the underlings of our society. And that's only by chance that for a lot of women, most women, they can reproduce. And that designates them to this underling role in our society in so many ways. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, the day we spoke at the conference a few years ago, I wanted to ask you about how you felt about meeting Fatima because you clearly embraced it. Your tears and smiles were so genuine and raw. 
But what you said to me that day was, I don't own him. I'm his second mother and he may have more. I'm just lucky enough to have shared part of his journey and that's my privilege. Well, I stand by that and and I might have said to you at the time, you don't ever say just, just the stepmother. You did because I think I was so torn at the time as a stepmom. You have all the care and responsibility, all the love in the world, but you don't have a right to, you know, be too involved. You sort of sit on the sidelines, but you helped alter my thinking because any part you play in a child's life really is valuable, any part. So important. And really, if you have the pleasure and benefit and the gift of playing a part in a child's life, well, that's what counts. It goes into all areas. And so for me, no one is ever just a stepmother or just a, you know, whatever kind of mother because that denigrates the value in many ways. So whenever I speak to people, I'm always very forceful about that and I might pick others up and say, oh, don't say that especially if you say that within the hearing of your child. We must never make less of ourselves. We should always make more of each other. That's always been my thinking. You know, keeping in mind, I had none of that when I was growing up. My mother was so disengaged, brutalised, unavailable. There was no affection or emotion. So in a lot of ways, I often think, where did I get all this from? But on that note, I put a lot of effort into reading and learning and exploring and most of all, observing. What was it like in those early days as a mother? I mean, you can do all the reading you like, but you have no template to help you. When it comes to showing love and affection, you've got to breach your psychological, emotional and physical barriers and you've got to overcome all of those things to reach another person, your child. The thing is that I came to it without fear. I trusted that I would always be capable of doing that. I'd watched and observed the best family examples. Luckily, we had lovely friends with lovely families, and I was so determined. It was so enjoyable. It was such a a newfound pleasure for me to hug and embrace. You know, I'd never felt that myself, but I knew the value of it. And I knew instantly from the first touch that it's two-way. So it wasn't about me forcing my emotions on my newly arrived children. It was being sensitive about that, being gentle and kind and mindful. And it just grew in a very organic way, a very natural way. And I saw it as an adventure. I saw it as my future and I'm very thankful for that. I'm not a person to sort of chop and change my mind about a lot of things. Once I've made a commitment, it's very rare for me to alter that course. That makes life a lot easier too because you do see a lot of people who are very unable somehow to make decisions and stick to it and they're constantly flitting from one thing to the other and not having successful relationships and not knowing whether to stay or leave. You know, those things are almost an affliction in my view because they make your life so hard and that's very sad too. I think that our society also promotes that by the conditioning that things should be a certain way. You know, like for my mother, she had to stay and endure a horrible marriage 
really when she shouldn't have. We would have been much happier if she'd moved on and we girls had gone with her and escaped our brutal father. But at that time, she was conforming to the Catholic faith and her teachings, and that was what was considered right at that time. But I am always very sad about her, um, the loss of possibility of joy in her life. You know, that's a very sad thing to think that that was my mother's lot in life. You clearly have a very strong marriage. How does John feel about your success? Well, you see, this has been a long process that he's been by my side through it all. And he's seen how hard it has been, how difficult and how at times I have been really struggling through the process. And, you know, as I sort of flick through my book now and when it came to the final moments, you know, where it's just got to be done and go to the printer, and I put right at the end that I suddenly realised that this process of two and a half years was at his expense because prior to that we were living a fabulous life Everything was as good as I could possibly wish for. But once I got immersed into this process of writing my story, you know, I wasn't as available. I was at times not there at all. I was suffering post-traumatic stress, digging up all this stuff. And, you know, he could just look in from the edge and just sort of comfort and support me as much as he could. But I had to get it done. It's not just the process of getting it done, is it? I mean, the emotional journey when you're writing a book can be really, really tough because it's not just your story. You have to relive all the trauma, the memories, the whole experience makes it almost visceral again. Yes. Well, it certainly was because there'd be many times I'd be having nightmares and, you know, it was really quite tough. And, you know, I'm not a spring chicken anymore, as they say. It's probably a thing that maybe I should have done it 10 years ago. But anyway, it is the path I took. And now I'm just hoping to see my words valued, to see some little glimmers of hope for change in our view of mothering. I suspect you're someone who doesn't believe in regrets. No, but you know, I tell you what, Sandra, this is almost a regret for me because of the cost emotionally to me. Probably if you'd asked me again now if I was going to do it, knowing what I know now, I don't know that I would have done it. You know, I've thought about that a lot because, you know, I'm really very desperate for some sort of result, some sort of improvement because of my words. Even if it was something as simple as, you know, each state welfare department deciding to have a combined input into providing adoption. If there was some glimmer that things could be made better to access adoption, it'd be worthwhile. And so I really respect and admire Deborah Lee Finesse, who I've met a couple of times, her quest in this area. And I value that because she's got a lot more, you know, scope for being listened to Whereas I'm just uh, this woman from Hobart, Tasmania. Lately, I've done so much media, they're probably thinking, oh, not her again. (laughs) I don't think so. You know, 
you need numerous voices and I might be just that woman on the telly who might bang on a bit about adoption but we're only as strong as the strength of our voices and you just can't have one person winning the battle so we're all doing our bit. I'm glad you said that because I do need reminding of that now and again because it does feel at times quite a lonely quest. I've got to believe that there are you know many women many sisters out there that have the feelings and the wishes that I've had. No, because for years, you know, we have been on a path of social learning, social welfare opinion that is obsessed with a point in the whole process of family creation, survival, which is um, that we are too strongly skewed in the favour of foster care in Australia. Look, for me, it's a really simple equation. Regardless of your choice about children, if you want to be a parent, there are so many children who simply need love, care and support. And if you have the financial and emotional means to do so, you should be able to do it. And you can't in Australia at the moment. And that's another thing. You know, I say that, I believe it, just because of what I see. I see it as an easier thing. It sort of conforms to this, you know, that children are always better off with their birth families. Birth families. Some birth families kill their children. Some birth families are, quite frankly, not capable ever of being good parents and providing the needs financially, physically, emotionally, in any way for the children that they bring into the world. But we've got this obsession in, oh, they're going through a rough patch. We call constantly for foster carers. There's never enough people to foster care these children in these most terrible situations. And my heart breaks for them because oftentimes they just end up being parked in foster care. Perchance their parents might become fit to be parents again, be capable to parent again. I feel that's such a betrayal of these children. I've come across so many people, young couples who, for whatever reason, decided to have a family a little bit later in life, and they were then left with no choice but to go overseas to adopt. And yet there are tens of thousands of Australian children desperate for care and a loving home. And to me, it's just gobsmacking that we can't make this happen. It is. It's a tragic thing. It is, in a way, another form of child abuse um, that we are legally and knowingly practising in this country with thousands of children. So a few years ago, I, I was at an event and I sat next to a politician. I was speaking at that event actually with Saru and this woman said to me, if I could find adoptive families for a 1,000 children that I'm concerned with today, I would do so. They're in foster care now. And it really rocked me. And then funnily enough, I've got a letter from this person who's now not in that role anymore, congratulating me on my book and recalling our conversation. And I thought, that number's probably doubled now. And yet no one's doing anything because it means saying that that those workers, those social workers, those bureaucrats need to change and do something different. And that fear of change and It's just, it stymies the process. How long was the process from when you and John initially decided to adopt through to when Saru and then Manny arrived? To wait to uh, fulfil the requirements 
to put in an application initially was 16 years because we couldn't prove infertility. So back then it was a process that was available to infertile couples and we couldn't prove that. So anyway, I've been very, in a lot of ways, I've got patience. (laughs) I can wait. I just felt I'm going to trust the heavens here. And I was young enough, let's face it, I was married at 17. You know, we got ourselves established and built a house and, you know, just sort of really got ourselves sorted and started our own business, which we're still running today. So we were establishing ourselves to be good parents. Then out of the blue, in fact, there was a small change. Um, Australia did become aware of a lot of children in desperate need and particularly in uh, zones where we'd been at war or participating in war like Vietnam. So suddenly we could apply and seven months later, Saru came to us in Australia from India. I, I was so happy and proud and glad that I hadn't fallen by the wayside and just changed my mind. And I guess, you know, referring back to the film Lion, the part where it's portrayed that um, Saru didn't know this point until he was a young man when I'm struggling and quite low. In fact, they always knew they were chosen. So again, I've clarified that in my book also because I feel it's really a most important part of me and who I am and for John and who he is. It's a statement of our commitment. And it's funny, you know, really to this day, most people don't really believe that that's true. But I can guarantee that my words are authentic, raw, and they are nothing but the truth, my truth. You said you wished that your meeting with Fatima had subtitles. Tell me about that. Well, that was uh, a huge moment for me. I feel I shared something special. The experience for me was that, you know, the travel to get to India, to be there, to be in the car with Saru and, you know, I was just building up into this um, emotional whirlwind. And funnily enough, as the moments went on and the minutes wore on, it seemed bit weird, but I sort of lost the context of other people around me. So that when I finally got out of the car and Saru took my hand and we walked along the lane and I saw Fatima in front of me, I was in sort of like a another zone or, you know, it was just a different kind of place. And I sort of really even lost a bit of hearing. I just really could hear the words and it was almost like, you know, our words were echoing and it was really, it was almost a little bit scary. But I feel that it was because everything within me was so heightened emotionally and every sense was altered by what I was walking into. And so I couldn't speak a word of Hindi and suddenly I'm holding this frail, amazing woman and just feeling, you know, I'm solid, strong, healthy. But here is this woman of such power. She had born my son. I really had to know, did she have a feeling in her heart and soul that Saru was alive and well and happy? And straight away she said yes, you know, and I understood. She had never moved away She had stayed there and waited because she knew deep down she would see her son again. 
Well, of course, that was just the most incredible relief to me because one of the things that had tortured me is that I knew Saru was loved. I knew, of course, he got lost on a train because he told us. So I knew he wasn't abandoned or mistreated. So I knew there was a mother out there that still had that emotion and connection for him. So it was a huge relief. She really thanked me from the bottom of her heart for giving him his new life. So that was, you know, that really further undid me because here she is living such a hard life and she's thanking me and, you know, having this going through my heart and soul and, you know, I really started to lose it quite badly. And then she became a bit upset at the state I was in and somehow took it into a mind that I was frightened that I was going to lose my son. So she was talking away to Savitri, the translator, and saying, look, she's getting very upset. I'm not sure how to handle this. And, but tell her not to cry and not to worry because he is her son now. I give her my son. Oh, gosh. Well, sadly, that didn't help me at all because that just really finished me off. I was just so undone by the just the power of this woman to say those words. But for me, I'm hearing two like-minded souls meet. You're trying to reassure each other and yet you're both saying the same things. Well, we, we are and really we're very blessed, very blessed because we did have that connection. We were totally accepting that we're sharing as mothers. We're no lesser as mothers than each other. We are the shared mothers. And, you know, I don't have any um, qualms about that. And often people say, look, you start your book just saying, oh, you're the second mother. What an honour. What an honour. I'm good with that. I'm more than happy that I've fulfilled my life dream and I am the second mother. You're a mother, whether it's first, second or third. And you said to me, after you, there may be more. But how lucky are you to have had that time? That is the quintessential message, isn't it, Sue? Value the time you have with whoever walks into your life for whatever reason. It makes sense of our humanity because it stops putting people in boxes. It stops denigrating certain areas of motherhood to satisfy the social whims of the time. And I think it's one of the greatest parts that I'd like to see expanded upon in women becoming equal and, you know, to use the old term, liberated, that it's this opportunity for expansion of thought and feeling and just building on that and making it much stronger than it is now. For me, that's so important. Thank you, Sue, for sharing your time with us today on Short Black. You really are such an impressive woman. And your messages are so profoundly important. As a mother and adopted child, I can't thank you enough for your time and for sacrificing those two and a half years to write your story. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm happy I've had the opportunity to complete my circle. You have been listening to Short Black a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.